Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. So it's now my pleasure to uh, introduce our first speaker for this year's energy update, and that is Audrey Zebelman. Audrey is the CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator, and Audrey joined AEMO back in uh, March 2017, uh, and uh, also serves uh, on the CSIRO Energy Advisory Committee and the Melbourne Energy Institute's Advisory Board. Uh, Audrey has a distinguished track record in the energy sector in the United States and brings a great deal of wisdom, information and experience uh, to her role in Australia as CEO of AEMO and indeed we will be hearing this morning about some of those insights and a a view into uh, the future of the energy transition. So please join with me in welcoming Audrey Zibelman. Thank you. Thanks, Ken, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. You only need to hear me once. Um, You know, the the theme of my conversation today is, is around the energy system in transition. You probably need to get rid of all those. That better, All right. and um, you know, and, and in many ways, you know, I think for us, it's not going to work. You want to just put that back there? Um, right this way. So. In many ways, for us, it is about the transition. I'm, I'm actually reading a book. It's called The Agile Executive, and I'm just practicing it in front of you. So, the um, but but you know. So when I think about this, back in 2009, um, I developed a chart like this when I actually started a company that looked at demand management and using batteries actually to store energy coming off of electric trains. And we talked about this, and, you know, that was sort of a vision of the future. And it's still a vision of the future, but that future is getting closer and closer. And I think if you go to any energy conference around the world, you're going to see a similar chart. We're moving from a very uh, the 20th century power system that was built around large central station power plant, transmission. There was economies of scale and distribution down to consumers, with consumers being very passive and their major energy interaction was paying their bill once once a month, to a future where everyone is envisioning that what we're talking about is truly a two-way power system, highly decentralized, where we can use rooftop solar, batteries, uh, smart appliances, the Internet of Things, uh, as well as uh, central station of distributed solar, distributed wind, storage, 
and conventional generation as a portfolio to drive a, a much more efficient future, as well as intelligence throughout the system. The challenge, however, is not the vision. I think we all have the vision, and if you go to any energy conference around the world, you're going to see a very similar chart. The challenge is actually managing the transition, and that's really the focus. So as I've been talking to people, it's not so much anymore as asking you know, us in this generation saying, what do we answer people in 2030 and 2040 about what we were doing or not doing? For Australia, it's really about what are we going to tell people in 2025 if we haven't taken the actions today to help us prepare for this future? And so what I want to talk about today is really the focus on what we see as the critical efforts. So in, in terms of that, you know, this is sort of a lot of the information that's happening in the power system today. The, the growth, as, as Ken said, in rooftop solar as well as grid-scale uh, renewables is incredible. We average on about 15 megawatts of change a day. Last year, we added 3 gigawatts, which is much more than in one, one year than we did in the last ten, 5 and 10 years. So it's, it's a very significant change. The, so we talk about the system being decarbonized. The other thing is it's becoming decentralized. We are becoming the fastest, we are the fastest growing economy per capita in terms of rooftop solar. In almost every region of the country, we have more than 20% of the energy coming from rooftop solar, which is considered phenomenal. My colleagues tell me they went to New England last year to talk to the, the uh, counterpart of AEMO, and the New England operator was saying, oh, life is rough. We're up to 2% of rooftop solar. And we looked at them and we said, you, you have no idea. So, so it's changing that quickly. The other piece, though, I think is increasingly important is digitalization. So all of these become opportunities. And the, and the issue around digitalization, one is the amount of data. And it's the amount of data reads that AEMO has to do. So we, we calculate. We used to do about six data reads today, a day per person. We're going to be up to 100,000. The amount of information that we need to process to take a look at how to manage the system. But the other point about digitalization is, is our ability to use uh, intelligence on the power system and use AI better. So as <clears throat> the system's changing, we have the computational capability to run the power system. And so we often talk in, in, the, in these forums around how Australia is going to lead and can lead, for example, in hydrogen development and things like that. The other area that I just think is so critical is the computational tools that we're going to need to run the modern power system. And here again, Australia is taking some leadership, and we need to reinvest and invest in that capability. So that's sort of, for us, the critical piece. The other aspect of the power system that's critical is, is it also increasingly becoming coupled. So that just want to make sure that's not me. Um, and, and the issue around coupling is really, is really important because for the first time, you know, we used to, we built the power system, and I've been in an industry since 1988, and it was always built around building transmission and generation to meet domestic load, and it was usually the domestic load of an integrated public utility. Suddenly, you know, it became a major thing, and we're seeing it in Australia now, the discussion around building up the power system, not just to meet the local node, local usage, but actually national usage. And now with the issues around hydrogen development and the possibility for hydrogen export, as well as the electrification of transport, 
and in other areas of the world, not so much here, but the electrification of heating, we're starting to think about how do you build a power system that's not just for not only domestic use, but what is the role then of government versus uh, traditional energy consumers in helping build out this network, and how do you plan for it? So all of these things are happening and become very critical issues for us to resolve. Now, you know, the other piece is I think is important, like every transition, there are multiple things that are going on, and it's not just one. So clearly consumer preference is happening here. You know, in, in my view, as we see the pickup on solar in communities like Perth and South Australia, you know, it, it's, no it's like a car in a garage. This is no longer rooftop solar, the domain of those technology uh, uh, sort of accelerators or people who have particular interests. It's becoming a habit of thinking about, well, this is how, how it gets done. So that's, that's changing the thinking. The other aspect, of course, is public policy can have a profound influence on, on the speed of change. But for us, the other pieces are, are weather and climate. We are managing a power system and are planning a power system that's going to be in a very different climate uh, situation than it was in the last 20 to 30 years. A lot of the tr transmission and generation resources that we use were not rated for the climate conditions that we're experiencing. So as we think about this, we have to think forward as to not just what's the temperature today, but what could be the temperature 20 years in the future. If, if uh, bushfires continue to be a problem, we have to think about a diversified system to make sure that they don't become an impediment to our ability to run, run the power system. So it's all those types of things that are driving our thinking around how we have to rethink the system. The other piece, of course, is aging power plants. That's a major factor for us. We have to think about the, the level of energy that's our, our, our generation that's leaving the system. CSIRO calculated that over the next 20 years, we're going to be looking at about a $400 billion investment in this sector. So as uh, the shadow minister just said, you know, one of the things that's really important, we want to maintain affordability, but we also want to have an efficient capital investment profile because one of the major things we can do is drive down the cost of capital when we're looking at this much investment. So we have to think about that. Plus, you know, we have to look at the issues of how do you integrate renewables better. All those elements are, are driving our thinking. Um, so what AMO has done then is sort of said, well, okay, given that, what are, what, are the, what are the factors we should be thinking about? So one, one is about weather. Um, since I've been in Australia two and a half years, we've had the hottest summer on record. So I asked the Bureau of Meteorology, is this, you know, are we going to continue? It's the hottest summer on record. And, and they said, we probably are moving into a new norm. But the other thing that's, that's incredibly important for us is not just that we're having higher mean temperatures, but it's actually the higher extreme temperatures coupled with short duration heat waves such as we're predicting this summer that cover multiple uh, cities, plus of course other climate conditions like high winds and drought that create things like, uh, that increase the risk of bushfires, but also recognizing that also increases uh, the amount of dust. So we always know in heat, traditional generation capability gets compromised because of the heat effects but also now with increasing dust in the atmosphere, when we're increasingly reliant on solar, 
that compromises the solar availability. So all of these factors, when you're running the power system, become very critical. So what is one of the reasons several years ago we, um, we put, placed an employee of the Bureau of Meteorology in our operations because one of the recognitions that we had between us and the Bureau of Meteorology that they, they need to understand how the power system works. They always understand human comfort and safety when it comes to weather. But understanding the effects on the power system is very important because then they can produce the detail that we need to run the power system. And so that becomes a critical feature for, because for us, weather and climate is becoming one of our largest fuel sources. The other piece, of course, is the issue of coal retirements. This is a chart we've produced in our integrated system plan. This indicates where we see coal retirements occurring based on technical useful lives. Obviously, there are economic issues that people deal with in terms of aging coal, but the point is, is that there's a lot of energy that has to be re uh, replicated or, or reinvested in, in Australia. The other is the speed of the transition. So one of the things that's really important for us is this. You know, when I, when I developed in, in New York just uh, five or six years ago, we were talking about the changing of the power system, and someone asked me how long I thought it would take, and I said, oh, a decade, which is always easy to do if you're in public office because it means it's past your administration. But the fact of the matter is, is it's happening really, really fast, and it's happening faster in Australia. So things that we predicted would happen in 2022, we're now predicting will happen in 2021. So we have to be thinking about the speed of this change, and it's almost like, you know, I think about the digital universe where people used to say that the rate of change was every 18 months, and now they're down to six months. I think we're, we're starting to see that digital change occurring in the power industry where the rate of change is much faster than anyone ever anticipated. So some of these things, I think, are, are incredibly uh, important facts for us to keep in mind. So take a look at this chart. I think, you know, when you, we talk about uh, in, in the energy industry the world-leading economies, when you see the uptake of uh, renewables, look where South Australia is compared to Denmark, which people see as the, the world leader. So what's happening for us is that when, we, when the International en Energy Agency talks about having to transform the power system and the market system to deal with renewables, they're talking about what happens when the power system has 20 to 30 percent of its complement being uh, variable renewable energy. We are off the charts in South Australia so that there are many times of the year where we're um, more than 50%. In fact, we hit 50% across the NEM several weeks ago, but even more than 120%. So running a power system with that much renewable energy is a very different phenomenon than running a power system of the past, and we, ha and we have to change to address that. The other is the aspect of decentralization. I'm sure you're going to see a chart like this a lot across the day. Ken had one, too. He stole my thunder. But this is the, the rate of change that's happening in terms of rooftop solar, and we expect it to continue to happen. And so now that we're talking about actually individual take-up, we have to realize that you know, individual owners of this rooftop solar are making investment, and their reasonable expectation is that those of us in the industry are figuring out how to make best use of that investment for themselves and for their neighbors, and so we have to get on with it too. And that is the chart, as I mentioned, shows how the solar capacity by, by state. So it shows that no matter where you are in Australia, we are, we are leading in terms of the uptake of rooftop solar. 
The other aspect of it is this. So, you know, when, when, um, the, when the AIMA was created in 2009, we had about 181 individual generators we managed. Now, with the uptake of rooftop solar, we're talking about 2 million various units. And as we add storage and electric vehicles, that's going to increase again and again and again. And so when you think about then the power system of the future, it is not just large central station power plants that sort of rumble along. It's all these very fast systems that need to be managed and, and can act either operate in synchronous, in other words, when the sun stops shining, it stops shining everywhere, or very asynchronous because you might have different things going on in different regions, and we have to deal with both. The change is something that we came up with in our integrated system plan, and, and I think this is an important uh, understanding that, that we need to have to make, you know, in, in all respects. So what we did in 2018 is we developed a least cost plan for the future where we forecasted what would be the likely outcome if we looked at plain economics when the coal retires. And what we identified is, is that when coal retires, the economic choice is going to be a combination of renewables with storage. Now, the difference is, is this. That green line there is demand. And so for the first time in, uh, in this, really, that since I think people started creating the modern power system, we're beginning to see that with the advent of rooftop solar and, frankly, greater efficiencies in white goods and buildings, that even while we can get economic growth, we don't anticipate a lot of growth in the electric, underlying electric demand on the power system because we're becoming more efficient users of energy. Now, that's obviously a good news story in many respects. But the difficulty is, is that when you're replacing then the coal units with other units, that means that you're having to build out a power system on flattened demand. And the way we built the power system in the last century we were able to make these investments because we had continuous demand growth. And that, therefore, you were able to keep prices affordable because we had usage growing with the economy. This means that now we have to replace depreciated old plant with new investment on a demand that is very flat. So when we had a power system that was built on the megawatt hour and the kilowatt hour of growth, and that's how we price things. If those two stay flat, we're going to have challenges around affordability as we invest. So, so one solution, obviously, is making sure we do it as well as we can, which is why I think it's important to think about what is the least cost investment. And then the other piece, which is what we'll talk about, is the things we need to do to make sure that those least cost investments are realized in an economic benefit for uh, users. So AMO through all this, went through last year and did some strategic planning and started to think about, well, what are the key things we need to do? Because our objective is, is, is clear. We want and we think we can deliver what I call the and solution. The system can be affordable and reliable and secure and achieve uh, environmental outcomes. It's not the technology anymore because the technology is getting there. The, the falling cost of renewables, solar and wind, and what people are projecting to be the falling cost of battery technologies is happening as well as other technologies. So the technology yield curve, particularly since now this is an international phenomenon, is going to continue to occur and will benefit from that. What we need to think about 
<clears throat> what are the other issues that we could do to make sure that that investment comes in, that the best investment comes in. We look at opportunities like hydrogen development in, in a way to help manage the cost, and we make sure that the markets are designed to attract that investment at the lowest cost to consumers. So we, we've identified what we think are a series of activities that uh, have to be priorities, prioritized and get done so we're ready. The other piece I would say about these, all the actions that we're talking about are also is how do we develop a power system that we can actually use to accommodate renewables and distributed generation because the power system that we built for the last century wasn't designed around those phenomenon. And so one of the objectives we have is to make sure that we have all the tools and capabilities in place so if this takes off, in a much faster rate, we have what I would call that undergrounding piping accomplished so we know how to integrate and make this change occur. So the first piece of this is what we call the actionable integrated system plan. In order to accommodate this change in resources, the footprint of the power system is going to have to grow. One, you know, one thing about thermal energies, coal and gas, you produce a lot of energy from a very small footprint. When you replace that with wind and solar because of the capacity factor of, of, those region, of those units, you need a lot more property. And not only that, you want to take, care of, take advantage of the diversity of weather. When the wind is blowing in Queensland, it may not be blowing in New South Wales. When the wind is blowing in Tasmania, it may not be blowing in Victoria. We want to have a power system so that becomes virtual and we can move that energy back and forth easily and take advantage of geographic diversity, including diversity of when the sun is setting because that's also an advantage. So what we've, what we've, we've identified through the integrated system plan is to make sure that we have the right transmission networks. Now as we think about in the future, which is we're going to have to think about, the development of hydrogen and electric vehicles, we'll need to, particularly around hydrogen, think about how those networks integrate in and how we couple that capability. But for now, this is going to be a very important part. So we've been working in the last couple of years, I'm very happy to say, with the Energy Security Board going on. So there is good news in all of this. We have reached a, a, an approach that the COAG Energy Council has been supportive of which says that we will have a very robust trans, uh, planning process where we think about all of these factors, develop out the type of network resources that allow us to achieve the least cost capability, and then be able to move from that to investment within a very short time frame. Because the problem we have is there's so much that needs to be done. The logistics of getting it done in a timely way are become very critical and we need to make sure that we keep the optionality. The other piece is that with the integrated system planning, we for the first time can start to, um, to take, I would say this is probably what people did when we had integrated monopolies, but in a market environment, what we need to think about is not just what we know is going to happen, but, but also the risk. So part of this is for us is a very important piece because we can't really, we know when the coal plant may technically retire but the matter of fact is, is that if you have a coal unit that is uh, no longer really fit for purpose and people are thinking about retiring it and then something goes bang in the night and it breaks and it is a massive capital outlay, any owner will tell you they're not going to be able to rebuild it 
over under that time frame. So what we have to be thinking about, because now for the first time, we don't have the reserves we used to have in, in this region, is that when those coal plants retire, we need to have the reserves in place in advance of that, which means we need to get the transmission and built. And these are the kind of issues that, that the COAG Energy Council is tackling, which I think is a good thing. So for us, what we do in our integrated system planning is we do typical scenario planning. We have a normalized case where we take a look at all existing policies, such as the state policies around renewables, and we also take a look at what we know are the known commitments. And then we, like any good scenario planner, we'll, we do, well, what happens if things go much faster than we thought? What happens if they go a little bit faster, and what happens if they go slower? And we, from there, make an economic, we make a determination, what are the types of investments that you would say, in almost all the cases, you should be making right now to deal with all of these eventualities, a lease regrets program? And that's what, that's what we put into place. We did that in 2018. We're going to be publishing our next one in the next couple of weeks as a draft. We're going to take in comments. The other thing that I think is a, is a big positive change, and one of, one of the biggest challenges around electricity industry is, is, is the mystery. It's very complex. One of the things that we want to do is create as much transparency as possible. So the process that we're using in planning is, is that on a very upfront basis, we tell people what the scenarios are we're planning around. And, it gives, and we give people it, an opportunity to comment on that. Are, do we have it right? Are we not aggressive enough? Are we being too aggressive? We also publish what are the costs. We work with the CSIRO to think about, well, what are the forecasted costs of technology and what kind of technology should we be thinking about and allow people to, to look at that. So all of that kind of takes the mystery about, well, what is, how did AEMO go from here to there? We don't, we don't want to have a black box we want people to have confidence and they understand how we arrived at a recommendation so that they could test the tires. And part of that is that we'll be publishing this draft plan in December with the invitation for people to kick the tires, challenge our assumptions, understand how we got there, comment to us if they think we have it wrong, so that when we publish the final plan in June, there's a great deal of confidence and everyone understands why we're saying what we're saying. And it's all around engineering. We run thousands and thousands of engineering studies. This is not people sitting in a room guessing. It's really running the plan. And we run it not just around the economics, but also around the security of the system so we know that we can actually deliver the energy that we're saying should be built. So it's a, it's a, I think it's a a great input, and Chloe Monroe's in the audience and should be talking later today, but this came out of the Finkel Review and I think has it's, it's been a great advantage and change to this industry. One of the things that the plan has identified in 2018 as verified this year is that when we think about, look at the economics of technology, and we're seeing this in the market, one of the things that's changing, of course, is that the cost of wind and solar is lower than the cost of new coal. So if you, and, and, and gas, so if you look at that issue and you combine it with the fact that it takes us much shorter time to design and develop a wind and solar farm than it is a coal plant, you could understand, regardless of any policy, why people who are having to put their own capital at risk are saying that they can't really build a coal plant in, in this type of environment because 
what they're concerned about is just the price. They won't be cost competitive under the current market design, which is why we, we expect to continue to see a significant increase in wind and solar so long as we get the transmission right. So that's the other piece is, is really thinking about where the networks need to go. One of the things that uh, we have a problem with right now in, in Australia is the fact that we built a lot of wind and solar in the weakest portion of the system. So you saw last year, those of us who watch the, uh, this industry, is that the losses which people have, which is the amount of energy that's lost when you move power from one place to another, was increasing. And we had a lot of constraints <clears throat> on the system because people were putting in more uh, generation than we actually could accommodate in the transmission system. One of the things that the integrated system plan wants to get ahead of is make sure that, that we have the transmission in place ahead of time to deal with it so we don't have this congestion. And part of that is um, the development of renewable energy zones. And these are areas where we've identified on a system basis are the best places to put renewables from a, at, you know, where the best wind is, where the best solar, but then we, in, in a combination of that, we work with the um, governments to identify where they want to develop it from a community, and we get the community acceptance because part of the issue is, of course, you may have the best resource, but if the community doesn't want it there, it's very expensive and difficult to build. And then we also work with the developers. So the idea now is, is to actually think forward and build transmission to the regions where it's, where it's the best locations so that we can reduce the cost of this type of investment. And then when generators do make, the developers make those investments, they have a great deal more security that there's enough transmission so they can deliver that energy to the usage. And that's a big change because one, there's two things that I think we have to always keep in mind. The best locations for wind and solar are not the locations where the traditional conventional generators are. So we do need to build the transmission, and they typically are not where people live. And so we have to be able to move that energy to the load centers. So thinking about the system and building it out in a thoughtful way and building it in conjunction in a very transparent process that also thinks about land use planning as well as, trans as, well as the best resources and community acceptance become very critical pieces of how we're going to build to the future. And again, the integrated system plan is, is gives us that window so that we can make decisions and not guess. To me, as some, you know, I think that's also very important for us when we think about capital costs, because when I talk to investors, obviously their concern is they're going to spend that much money and they don't have confidence that they can deliver the energy. Their price of capital, that risk premium goes way up. What we want as consumers is to give investors the confidence so that they can invest, make the money that they expect to make, and then we can redeploy that capital over and over again. Um, the other piece that, that we've identified is in, in through doing it this way and building out the networks, you know, we're looking at potentially saving uh, just on a, on a fairly conservative basis up to $4 billion. That was on our 2018. This is an independent study that was done. But the point is, is that, again, what we have to do and think about is, is how to plan thoughtfully, develop thoughtfully, and do so, so in a way that we can drive down costs for consumers. And so the, the, other, the other area that we focus on is, is reliability. So one of the things that EMO worries about, of course, is in the summer months is when our highest peak 
is making sure we have enough resources available. That um, availability issue is complicated by two factors. One is weather. So obviously on very hot days and when you have multiple days of heat waves, we worry about both the demand increasing, but we also worry about the generation availability because that's when the system is most stressed. And when you combine that with bushfires, these become very complicated issues. So for us, what we need to do is we need to have enough resources to meet what we forecast to be the potential demand, but we also have to have additional resources available for two reasons. One is we never can operate the system when there's just enough generation to meet demand because that means if something does break, the system goes black, and we don't want that to occur. So we have to have resources in reserve. We also recognize that we have to have sufficient resources to deal with the fact that a lot of generators uh, or we have generators that will break, and we need to be able to have excess spare capacity to deal with it. And so that's what we forecast every year is to make sure that that resources are available in each region. What we worry about is, is that we can have, and for the most part, in normal summers, okay. But what happens, and particularly with aging generation fleet, what we're seeing is that the risk of having generators fail, like happened to us in Victoria last year where we had three generators out during the hottest two days, is that we could end up in having to do involuntary load shedding. So for AMO, it's very important that we have the reserves sufficient, not just to deal with the average summer day, but also the hot summer day and the recognition that we're dealing with uh, units that may not be available, particularly as they get older. And so the, in new, what we predicted in Victoria this summer was, the, was a significant risk of that, which required us to go get reserves. And, there's, and we're also saying that in New South Wales, when Liddell retires, we're going to be in a similar situation. And so we need to make sure that we have the resources in place in advance of the retirement so that we don't confront these types of emergencies. The other thing that we're worried about in terms of reliability is, is the effect of, of the changed uh, operational capability of the power units. And I want to be very clear on this. This is not about uh, pe the people not doing a good job in operations. The fact of the matter is, is as power system, power generators get older, they're machines. They're like old cars. And if you run them like they're a new car, they're going to run into problems. They need more maintenance. They need more care. And when things break, they, they are more expensive to repair. And so that's what we're seeing. So if you look at that chart, what's, what's really hit us is if we look at over 10 years of operations, which was done historically, and we look at the last five years, you see a market difference in the uh, brown coal, the oldest units, and, and even some of the black coal units as they get older. So that purple chart, or the red chart, shows you the increased amount of times that these units are out on an unplanned basis, which means that, again, we need to have the reserves to deal with that, and that those diamonds show you what's happened in the last couple of years. So for AMO, when we think about reliability standards, what we're saying is, is that it's not just about the weather, because we do know with the amount of rooftop solar, the afternoons are not peaking like they used to. But we're also dealing with, with aging units, and we have to have a standard that allows us to have the market bring in those resources rather than AEMO taking on that responsibility. So this, this chart, I think, is, is really indicative. This is the, uh, the lawn unit, and it just shows you what's happened on availability. 
And one of the things that uh, when I talk to the generation owners, part of the issue is that we don't have a lot of experience on end of life for coal units. What, what does it look like in terms of operational capability? We do know it's going down. We do know that with the amount of renewables, we're, ramp, we're, we're operating these units in a way they weren't designed to be operated. And a lot of these owners have switched ownership multiple times. <clears throat> so they don't have a really good maintenance history in terms of how they were maintained in their early years. So what we have to deal with is the, is the risk of that. And that's, that's so for us. We were very pleased last week that the COAG Energy Council agreed that the reliability standard that we, we've been using, which was fit for purpose for the last decade, needs to be modified. So EMO has the capability and, and the resources are coming into the market so we, we don't have to go out and have emergency reserves. The other piece that I think is very important uh, for all of us is what we know in this society is that um, the morbidity and mortality rates associated with hot weather when there is insufficient cooling are very high. So the last thing we want is for people not to be able to put on their air conditioners on a 38, 39, 40 degree day. And so we, we just have to fix this issue. The other piece that uh, we're dealing with is distributed energy resources. So on the upside, the, one of the things that, that we're very excited about is, is that you know, as we're thinking about how this power system's changing, the technology is changing. And so we want to look about how we can integrate in and have this two-way power system that we're using resources that sit at the, behind the meter, at the, at the home of businesses or, or households as to, to actually help us manage the system. So, rather, so part of this is associated with the fact of, again, the changing nature of the system. The um, Swiss in Western Australia is a great example where we're seeing close to 30% of the power usage coming from rooftop solar, which is fantastic until the clouds come over and then we need something else and which is fantastic until the clouds come over and then the clouds disappear, and the clouds come over and the clouds disappear, and we're seeing the energy use uh, rotate look like, looking like someone's echocardiogram, and we need to have units that can, re can manage that. So part of what we've, we've been talking about is how do we deal with that. So one is, you know, we, we have a, it's interesting, you know, we used to, we always worry about the peak days in the power system and how do we manage that. But for the first time in Australia, which is getting a lot of international recognition, we also have significant issues in the spring and the fall where we have a lot of sun, not a lot of usage, and the demand is so low that we're worried about managing the voltage of the system. Sometimes the demand is lower than the smallest generator. And so how do we manage a system when we don't have enough usage? And so we begin, this is what people call the duck curve, we can call it Himu curve here, but the issue is this, is how do we flatten that demand? Or the other piece is that when the sun sets and all that solar disappears, suddenly we have to put in all this generation to replace it. And those become very challenging aspects for running a power system. So part of our challenge the next several years is how do we make that duck get less fat? So what the other the one way we're doing this is through the work we're doing around virtual power plants. And we have a great program of work we're starting in the ACT that I think ANU is involved with, but we're doing it across the region. So this isn't a great example of what we've done. So virtual power plants, in my mind, you know, people throw out these terms, microgrids, micro, virtual power plants. 
But a virtual power plant is taking a lot of distributed energy resources, aggregating it up, having a common control system. So if you think about all of your rooftop solar and batteries and other devices being managed in such a way that you don't know it, you're just being paid to, be, to really be able to use it this way, so that it's almost like having a big generator sitting through all these various devices, and that allows us to use demand to replicate. So when that cloud cover comes over, what we could do is unleash the batteries and use those resources rather than putting on another power plant. And so this was an example that we, had, we experienced several weeks ago where we lost a generator, major generator, and because we had this virtual power plant where we were aggregating it, they got the signal and these devices responded and they replaced that missing generation instantaneously, which avoided us having a problem on the system. And what we want to do is use these not over and over again, make them become part of the system itself. And so part of this is creating this two-way power system where now we can use orchestrated demand resources and that these investments in rooftop solar not only benefit the individual owner, but they benefit everybody because we're creating a much more efficient power system, avoiding the need to have to build new generation just to deal with these moments and be able to take advantage of these resources and smart technologies to use them better. And this was an early example, but what we expect to become the norm and want to become the norm in the next several years. So to do that, there's a few things that need to happen. One is we need visibility. AMO can't manage. We have to, it's a real-time system. We, we can't pretend, we can't guess, we can't hope. We have to have the information available so that we know that we can rely on this system. So last year, the AMC created a, what we call the DER register, and really this is a way for us to have visibility. It's not visibility to your home, but it's visibility so we know what's out there and we know what's being used and what's available to us to manage the power system. So that's going to be very, very important. And the distribution utilities need that too because otherwise they're going to have to uh, worry about if somebody's, if there's too much solar coming on, am I going to burn down the power system? So we need to recognize now that we've gone to the point where distributed energy is a significant part of the system, it, it is a significant part of the system and has to be managed that way. The other piece is, is really thinking about then how do, we, how do we change then the market. So the other aspect of this which is going to be very important is to recognize that as we've moved away from synchronous generation, we're going to need a lot of changes in the marketplace to deal with how to, how to pay for things. So one of the issues that we've been running into the last several years is that, um, and I'll just do it this way, because is two things. One is, as these traditional generators retire, we need to manage not only just the adequacy of supply, we need to manage the frequency of the system. So we've seen the frequency in this chart change significantly. That, so what happens to AEMO, we'd, like, a very, we'd le like to maintain frequency in a very tight bandwidth. As we've had more and more uh, asynchronous wind and solar come onto the system and traditional generators retire, we've seen that drift. And so our concern is how to make that tight. Because if we can't manage frequency, the security of the system uh, suffers and we have more risk of, of system black events like we saw in South Australia. We also recognize that, that we're using going from um, traditional conventional generation to, to, to electric control systems. 
And so we, therefore we need to have the ability to use those resources better and knowledge of how they work. One of the things that, uh, you know, I think to simplify this, we had 100 years of experience, thousands of years of experience, if you look across all the power, modern power systems in how to integrate a power system that's looking at conventional generation and transmission and distribution. We only have a decade worth of experience of how to run a power system with high degrees of renewables, and Australia is leading the way. So the issue for us is not just understanding the availability of these resources, but how do we manage a power system that's built around a totally different technology to make sure that we're able to run the power system in the future. And again, here's another area where I think Australia will be leading. The example here shows you really why we need to, to address this quickly. So the, the green chart is the, um, I have to put my glasses on for this one. The green, the green line here is uh, the amount of renewables. This is a day in South Australia that is coming onto the system. The black line shows you what's happening in prices. So the challenge we have right now is, is that because our prices is based on energy, we're seeing our energy prices go down with the increase of renewables because they don't have a fuel cost. Well, if you're running a gas generator and you're seeing that the price of energy is below your cost of gas, you're going to do the rational thing and say, I'm not bidding into that market. I'm not going to get paid. In fact, I'm going to lose money. And so what happens then is AEMO has to come on board and say, well, we're going to direct you on because the market isn't bringing you on and we'll pay you an administratively set price. So it's an intervention that we do, which is a distortion, of course, to the market. What we need to do is recognize that those generators are providing an important resource in terms of system strength and reserves that we need to run the power system and start pricing those differently so that we create those incentives. That chart on the right shows you the amount of times that AEMO intervened in 2018 to direct those units on, which is expensive and what we're looking at in 2019. So our goal is to think about how do we reform the market so that EMO isn't having to direct those on, but we set the incentives right so these resources come in themselves. So what, what we've done last year is we, we did commissioned a study or did an internal study on what are other regions doing that have high degree of renewables. And what they've done, and this is, um, I think, pretty straightforward, is they've begun to recognize, and we are recognizing it here, that energy as a component of the power price, as we have more and more renewables, energy is really the price of fuel, transformed. And as we have more and more renewables that have zero fuel price, the energy component of the power bill should continue to go down and become a smaller part of the bill. The resources, though, that complement renewables, such as storage, such as gas, have a fuel price. But they don't pay, aren't paying really providing the energy as much as the value is, is in the other services they're providing for us to help manage frequency and to be responsive in the system. And so these type of markets around reserves, around what we call essential services like frequency and system security become more important in markets that evolved away from conventional generation to renewables. So one of the other areas we're focused on is to get the markets redesigned to look at that because it will be very important to drive it, the type of investments. So these are the types of things that, that other markets have. Now, very fortunately, we have commenced a piece of work with the Energy Security Board that started last year 
to start looking at the markets that are going to have to be in place in order to accommodate this, these changes. And then again, last two weeks at the COAG Energy Council, the Energy Council directed the Energy Security Board to, to identify these very near-term changes that need to be made to make sure that the markets themselves don't become an impediment to making the transition work. And we're working on that with the AMC as well as the other market bodies to, to get that done. The other uh, piece that, that we think is really important is, is around managing coal exit. So here's the issue. As I said, a lot of these people will make very economic decisions to make sure to, to uh, exit their power plants before their technical lives, end of their technical lives, simply because of economics. The question is, how do you deal with that? In other, uh, in other markets, the issue becomes, well, well, wait a minute. We're going to commission that transmission line next year. If you retire this year, all of a sudden I have to go out and buy a bunch of diesels or something else that doesn't make a lot of economic sense. So what other markets have done to manage that is they put in mechanisms that have said if you can actually establish that you are economically underwater, you're not engaging in bad conduct, and the plant is safe, and we need to regulate you for six months or a year because you're, you're, you really are exposed to an economic risk, that may make more sense in the long run than simply saying let them retire and us having to rush to build in new resources when we have plans to do something else that is much more economical. So one of our, our issues that we want to address with is how do we deal with these aging units so that they, their, their departure is timed in such a way that we can manage the entrance and do it in a way that's most economic for consumers. So that's another area the ESB is working on. The last point uh, for us is around the digitalization. This is a, actually a great picture. This is actually the simulator that State Grid of China developed of the whole national system in, in China. So in China, what they've done is they have their power system, and then they have a real-time simulation of their own power system. And what they have is operators every day in that simulator taking the information from their power system and learning how to use AI, how to use advanced technology, advanced computing to run a power system in a much more efficient way. What we're seeing in Australia is very much the same need. The com computational tools that were developed for the last century simply are not keeping up with the computational requirements. We've made a significant investment in Australia, in, in AEMO, in terms of increasing the computational capability of our forecasting, using machine learning, understanding the uncertainties and how to manage those uncertainties because of the managed amount of data we have to deal with. And we think more and more these types of tools, the ability to, to deal with this, is going to be a, a great opportunity for Australia to lead in the types of computational capability. One of my uh, formative experiences when I, when I got into this business is I went to uh, Rockwell Automation, and they had a system that they developed to deal with the rocket launches because they had 200,000 bits of information that they had to deal with in one minute or less to address whether or not they were going to launch a rocket or not. And they did this, and it was phenomenal. And that essentially is what we need, because we're launching rockets every day, and we need to have that computational capability so that our decision makers can make the right decisions without fear of, you know, of having to basically keep resources online in excess 
because they don't have enough information. So I think this is, you know, for me, one of the key issues, and, and AIMO is, is already working with the industry and, and the Commonwealth to talk about how we can create the right tools here so that we make sure that the, the ability to manage data itself isn't an impediment to the future I think we all want to get to. So thank you very much. I hope this was a little more uplifting. We do have plans in place and look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much, Audrey. Uh, we uh, now will have an opportunity to uh, take some questions uh, from the audience. Uh, but I'd like to first uh, just start out with a, with a question about uh, how this future energy system will look. And the way I like to think about it is uh, it's going to look more like the Internet of Energy. There's going to be millions of generators, millions of storage uh, systems, millions of demand response uh, opportunities, uh, and it's going to be highly interconnected with a much more complex topology than we have at the moment. And with that comes a number of things. As we've seen with the internet, there's uh, a certain amount of resilience associated with multiple uh, pathways, uh, redundancy uh, of these pathways, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also increased vulnerability. You've got greater access points for cyber uh, interdiction. Uh, there's, uh, you know, obviously uh, going to be opportunities uh, because it's spread out into a whole range of different areas for uh, extreme weather events to disrupt the system. So uh, my question is around resilience and how do we plan a future electricity system to have resilience in the same way that the internet has re resilience? Can the future internet of energy replicate that type of uh, robustness. Thanks, Ken. And um, yes, and if I didn't put cyber on my list, it's, it's sort of my bad. We, it's certainly the issue of, of cyber threats is, is very important, but I think resilience is a broader term. Un, you know, we need to not only be resilient against uh, the cyber, we also need to be resilient against weather and, and climate change. We need to think about how to build that power system that is resilient. But in cyber itself, we, we certainly need to, to be cognizant uh, that, you know, they're, they're, that they're bad actors and, and it's constant. And so we do have programs in place throughout the industry to monitor that and to make sure that we have the ability to respond. But to me, the, the best way to do this is going to be situational awareness and then to use the technology so that we have multiple points of data, multiple ways of going back and verifying whether we're having good information or bad information, and the ability to have the diversity of resources that we can use because that, that's going to be really, really critical. So we, we certainly have robust programs around cyber protection and the protection of our networks and certainly the operating systems, but we're also cognizant of the fact that we need to have uh, a good deal of uh, rep ability to get multiple information throughout the system. The other piece is, is around standards. And so... Um, across the industry, people are starting to recognize as we're looking at electronics, and those electronics can be programmed in uh, areas that you, know, you have no idea, you, you need to have the standards in place to make sure that the people who are investing in these resources are, are a safe pair of hands and are not going to be introducing malware into the system. 
Yes, indeed. And in the future Internet of Energy, your fridge could be the entry access point for, for such attacks. Yeah, I, a couple of years ago in, us, in the U.S., everyone started to get afraid of their microwave. <laughs> okay, now we'll move to questions from the audience. We've got a hand up here and uh, a hand up over there. Could you tell us what role there may be for concentrated solar power as a replacement for batteries or an alternative to batteries, and particularly when you have high demand on the duct curve? Certainly. I, I think um, there's a lot of work going on concentrated solar, and people are looking at the prices going down. And I just saw there was a breakthrough in the technology. There's an article I read a couple of weeks ago that of some work that's being done to, to make it much better. I think in the future it will be of, of huge value. We don't see it yet coming in uh, into the current plan, but you know, but my my feeling about this industry in, in general is is I, I am extremely humble and will not make any predictions around where the technology yield curve has been, because the one thing we know is everyone who predicted that solar and wind costs would come down was wrong by a factor of two or three. It went down faster than anyone expected, and I expect we'll see the same around these other technologies. Uh, my name's uh, Hugh Sadler. Thank you for that wonderfully comprehensive account of what you've been doing. But one issue I don't think you touched on was using, managing the uh, the load at the consumer's point to manage those very peak peak days. And uh, 12 days ago in South Australia, it was the highest peak for the summer so far, and it was almost twice the peak the next day. And you had plenty of on the grid, that is not counting the rooftop supply. Uh, you have plenty of generation, but it's also the capital that you have to invest in the distribution network is really being used extremely inefficiently. If you only have that load on the grid about three times in the year, and there are obviously a lot of opportunities for managing down the, gener the uh, air conditioners and the, and the water heating and moving it into the middle of the day where, when the sun's shining, and I was wondering what you're doing on that front. So I probably skipped over that too quickly. So the work we're doing around virtual power plants is around managing demand. AEMO also started three years ago to develop. We had a program we put in place with ARENA, uh, a pilot program around wholesale demand response where we actually pay people who are able to reduce and shift their load. Because for AEMO, recognize we're, we're an independent entity. We just – what our job is is to make sure that generation – and to, and demand match. We don't own anything. And for us, being able to reduce demand where someone is voluntarily to reduce and is often more valuable because it's more certain, and we're willing to pay the prevailing price of energy to do that. Those kind of markets are actually extant uh, across the world. Now, the, the um, AMC last year has issued a, a rule change to allow for that to become part of the market. So we have, you know, the, the experiment has moved us on to create a market, and we're working with the AMC now to implement that as, as cost-effective as we can because you're, you're totally right. People are investing a lot, and we definitely don't want to build distribution, transmission, and generation for a few hours a year. One, you can't make the economic case, and secondly, it makes for a much more efficient system. Thank you, and please identify yourself when you ask your question. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my name is Nigel Goddard, University of Edinburgh. Um, I'm interested in the role you might see for g hydrogen to play 
in the future electricity network. I mean, we often think of these things as completely separate systems, but um, you, you could imagine that hydrogen becomes a storage medium. Um, and so do, do you see the, the two systems kind of integrating? Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we know is that when it comes to, to storage, we're going to need storage that is instantaneous, that batteries can provide. We'll also need storage that could be last for hours of duration um, or weeks or months. And then we'll need seasonal storage. And so uh, we see hydrogen as playing a very significant role as a storage facility that we can use and to complement uh, a much, you know, a, a, a grid that's made up of a lot more uh, solar and wind and things like that. And so that's why when we talk, when I talk about the coupling of the system, we really need to be thinking not only about the potential use of hydrogen as a fuel, but the potential use of hydrogen as, as a source for domestic electricity or storage. And I think just to follow up on that, with the slide that I showed earlier, there's the potential for a very large tail to be wagging a very small chihuahua. If um, the prospects for renewable hydrogen take off, that could dwarf the size of the uh, demand uh, domestically in Australia. So we have to ask the question before we even get near that situation as to how we design a future electricity system and a market that will respond to those massive uh, export opportunities. A uh, question up the back. Hi, uh, Rob Fisher from WinLab. Um, you talked about uh, some market interventions to manage the exit of, of dying coal. On the other side of the market, new entrants are coming in and they come in in a boom and bust cycle. It's very disruptive. H how do you see that risk and how does AMO think about managing, uh, forecasting boom and bust in the new entrants to, to the market? Hi, Nigel. So I, I think one of the things we're going to have to think about, Nigel, is to eliminate the boom and bust. So part of the work that the Energy Securities Board is, is looking at it, you know, in terms of future markets is to provide that incentive so that it's a very consistent incentive. And, you know, um, uh, Warren Buffett owns uh, one of the largest utilities in the United States, and he made, you know, sort of a very wise comment, I, I thought, some time ago, which is, is that when you want your utility, your energy investments, to be good investments, not great investments, because there was a period of time that all the utilities in the U.S. thought they had to have a 10% rate of growth every year, which put them into all sorts of weird things, like they invested in a bunch of power plants in uh, Australia, and then they almost all went bankrupt. And so those types of things you want to avoid in this energy industry, and I think creating a market that creates a stable investment environment where people have good returns but not great returns is really what we want in type of essential service, and I think that's something that the, I know that's something the ESB is conscious of. <coughs> Um, Jenny Goldie from Climate Action Monero. Um, could you say something about pumped hydro, please? Um, my town, Coomera, is looking forward to Snowy too, but um, there are some environmental groups that uh, are opposed to it on environmental grounds. So um, Professor Blakers has come up with 22,000 sites around the country of pumped hydro. He thinks that Snowy too is still necessary, but could you um, give me your opinion on this, please? Sure. Well, our, um, our plan, we've looked at both Snowy Hydro and the Battery of the Nation, and we believe that both of those resources are going to be very critical resources as we see the coal exit 
and will be very important as a, as a backup resource. Pumped hydro is obviously a, could be a fantastic resource. Our issue, as we talk about, is, is that during the afternoons anymore, we have too much energy and not enough demand. And so the ability to use that as a, as a resource to, to pump in the afternoon and then have that hydro available when the sun and wind aren't available becomes very complementary. And we think both will be critical as, as replacements, as well as the pumped hydro that, we, that has been identified in, in other states. But those two, I think, will be an important part of the power system. Uh, Lawrence McIntosh, Institute for Sustainable Futures. There you are. It's hard to see. That's okay. Uh, my question is about the data and integration of our you know, decentralised and digitised electricity system. And particularly, we've got a lot of IoT devices predicted to go into homes, businesses, EVs, etc., and an existing fleet of, of smart meters to a certain degree. How do you see those devices working together? Are they duplicating their, their capabilities there? And what's the pathway to the future? So, you know, it's really interesting. I think what's going to happen is, is that... You know, we run generation to meet demand. What's going to happen, I think, is just the reverse. With, with IoT and, and rooftop solar and, and uh, electric vehicles and all these resources behind the system, what I'd like to see and, and sort of my, is, is that we solve the system at the edge of the system. So people talk about it as being the transactive grid where you actually get prices to devices. I'm not talking about people day trading electricity. I think you can move to a point where you get a subscription price for energy it's an all-you-can-eat as long as they can have access to these resources and you define your comfort. And, that, and, you, and really, you use intelligence in the system to manage these resources to provide an optimal demand flow that therefore allows us to match the generation needs. So rather than generation following demand, which is the way we built the system in the last century, I think we're going to optimize demand to meet generation. And that's where I, I, I'm really hoping our work around the two-way power system, the two-way market, and the work we're, we're doing around virtual power plants and how we can use these resources becomes really the gateway to a future that, that makes, drives productivity and efficiency at the edge of the system rather than in the centralized system. Uh, hello, Rowan from the ANU. Um, you mentioned before that uh, the demand has remained flat over previous years. However, uh, factors like population growth, uh, rising temperatures, uh, perhaps exporting hydrogen or even electric cars. I wonder whether you think uh, demand will increase overall in the future. I think we'll, we'll have increases in the demand for uh, power, but it's not necessarily going to be for domestic use, as Ken said. And so the question is, for the first time, when we think about you know, how we price these resources out and the development out, it's, it's not just saying, well, you know, electric demand is going up, so, demand, so the people who are use, increasing that demand need to pay for that investment, but to recognize that we're creating a power system that's going to serve multiple needs. And one of the issues I think we have to address as a, as a society is how do we allocate those costs in an, in an efficient way and in a fair way? Uh, Jing Huang from CSIRO. So uh, uh, thank you for the very nice uh, presentation. I just have a very general question about the, the role of uh, transmission. So here we have two trends. So on one trend that we have, uh, we have the, uh, the wind and solar generation just getting uh, cheaper and cheaper. And on the other hand, we have the, um, 
uh, uh, managing the whole uh, system, the grid system, is just getting more and more complicated and uh, more expensive. So, so I, I, I'm just wondering that uh, how will these two trends will lead to you know the the role of the uh, the uh, transmission? Are we are we going to have more and more off off grid uh, systems like the residential homes, like this uh, rooftop uh, solar PV plus uh, the battery, or we have sort of more uh, tran transactional uh, uh, electricity using what the um, the essential transmission grid? So what's so what what would be the role and the importance like the very long long distance the transmission like the uh, inter interstate the lines or that so what's your opinion on that you know i i think it's it's a combination of both we're going to have to have the the um large scale wind and and solar because you know, as they are most they continue to be on a scale basis much more economically efficient even when we add transmission to the mix. That's what our, our modeling shows, combined with much better use of demand. So what, what we're showing in, in our modeling and what I showed about the duck curve and the peak is, is that our, we have the opportunity to use distributed resources to make the usage of energy much more efficient. And then we can use that in combination with wind and solar to, to meet the rest. But I think the most important piece, if I could get people to you know, start take this away. The complexity of running a power system historically was in the plant. You need to make sure you had enough fuel. You need to make sure that the system was running. All those logistics were in the centralized power plant. As we move towards wind and solar, that operation capability is, is becoming simpler and simpler. <clears throat> in fact, many of the batteries we use today they don't even have individuals bidding them in. They're already using artificial intelligence to create the bids. So the complexity in the system is moving to the digital, to the control room, to what AEMO does. And it's in the digitalization and advanced computing capability around being able to use these resources where I think a lot of the investment today that's not being made today needs to be made. And so we're very much focused on, on creating the, the capabilities to use that same computing capability that's allowing us to digitalize the economy to be much smarter around how to use those resources and much more efficient and much more productive. And I think that's, that's in addition to everything else, where I'm hoping Australia will have a, a capability to lead. Uh, will Howard from the Department of the Environment and Energy. Audrey, over here. I'll stand up so you can see me. Um, I just, you mentioned a lot of the resources, especially rooftop solar, remaining sort of behind the meter. Do you have a sense of the rate at which um, we're getting those resources more visible and integrated into the grid, even as they grow? Well, thanks to the work we've done with the department around creating the kind of platform, we're, we're getting more visibility. I also think uh, what we're also seeing emerging is different business models. So. You know, one of the issues that, that happens when you move to a much more distributed, and people call it a democratized power system, is the issue of the haves and have-nots of people who live in, um, you know, uh, apartments or small commercial buildings that don't, they don't have a roof. And so what we see is emerging, actually, are things like community solar, which, quite frankly, I think are a great advantage because you can site it and people can own it, but they can own it virtually. And I, I, so I think this move will, tr will move, but we should also see the emergence of business models where people are, are looking at it as, as almost a subscription-type program. Uh, 
as opposed to an ownership program. And, and that itself will, I think, accelerate the development of, the, of this sort of new world. Second last question over there. Audrey Anna Freeman from the Clean Energy Council. Um, a question about renewable energy zones. Um, there's a lot of complexity as to how they will actually develop um, and um, what comes first. Obviously, you need the transmission there, who pays, how does it get organised. There's a whole community aspect, etc. New South Wales has just put out a very interesting announcement last week uh, to say that it's going to take a very hands-on approach, call for expressions of interest for developers that might be interested in in working in that, setting up an, uh, an agency or a body that will sort of look after the coordination. I wanted to ask you, does that align with your vision for how or expectation for how renewable energy zones might develop? Is that a model that could be picked up and used elsewhere? And this is, is this the way that we might best manage coordination of generation and transmission assets? Uh, thank you. Yeah, um, yes, and, we're, and we are working very closely with New South Wales to help them implement it. You know, they're, they're working, we're looking at renewable energy zones that AMO's identified as good for uh, the, the power system and they're looking at as good for the community. I do think so. I mean, we're, we're talking about a combination of not just building up the power system, but land use planning. And we want to make sure that we're, you know, we're, we're dealing with uh, the ownership, the, the original owners of the land, indigenous populations, as well as communities, and that we're, again, putting in enough resources because the last thing we want, and we are seeing a slowdown in renewable investment as a, as a result of the problems we've had in the past, is to is to create have this boom and bust cycle and uncertainty. It's not good for anyone. And the other piece is, is that we want communities to understand these resources coming in and be able to value them and to and, and to think about it as a as a very positive outcome, because that's going to not only reduce costs, but it's really uh, it is and I you know not not be, beyond AEMO but it also is the issues around job growth and where these communities are going. So it becomes a very, I think, holistic and comprehensive way of, of addressing how we need to build out the system in the future and is a good model. And one final question in the middle. Um, uh, thank you, Audrey. My, my name's Denby, I'm from the ACT Greens. It seems like we're in a parallel universe because what you're presenting is very sophisticated, it's very, um, visionary and I'm wondering whether you see the political intransigence of conservative politicians in this country as one of the risks that you need to factor into forward planning. So um, you know I think one of the things that that uh, you know we're we're seeing in AMO is one is the near-term issues that, that we've we've identified you know is going out the next five years these are issues that, that all of the COAG Energy Council saw. So again, you know, we went to the meeting. One of the things was how to make sure that the integrated system plan is truly actionable. And all of the ministers embrace that. They all see this as an issue that needs to be addressed. We talked about the need for reliability, making sure that we're dealing with aging resources and we deal with the facts 
and they're all there. So, so the way we look at things, Amo, you know, we, we're mathematicians, we're scientists, we're engineers, we run the power system, we use models, we use fact, and we present things as we know them based on evidence, not based on philosophy or theory. And, and it's from that, we believe that uh, the, the ministers are being responsive because it is around that. So that for us, our objective is to increase the transparency, increase the knowledge, make everything known so that we're not debating the facts. We can always debate policy. We can always debate aspirations. But, for, for, you know, we've got to stop debating the facts. And, so that, and we see that as a very important role that, that we can play. Great. Well, I, I'm sure there are many other questions, but uh, time uh, is upon us. Um, we, uh, I think, have had a, a great insight uh, here from Audrey. In fact, we're very grateful that uh, she's uh, come to, uh, to Canberra and, uh, and indeed to the ANU, where many of the um, prospective contributors to the vision that she's outlined today um, uh, might be now thinking about ways in which we can design a, a future uh, energy system. Uh, Audrey's also kindly agreed to speak to the Women in Energy group here at the Energy Change Institute afterwards upstairs. So uh, those of you who are going to that, um, just follow us up there immediately following. Uh, but I think uh, you'll all agree that that was a, a, a fantastic insight into the uh, wonderful planning and the leadership that uh, Audrey has brought the Australian energy market operator. And, uh, and I think uh, with this sort of foresight and with the ability to uh, tap into uh, uh, the thinking uh, around the country and, and particularly uh, here uh, in Canberra and today and you, uh, that there is uh, great hope and, uh, and optimism for the future. So thank you very much, Audrey. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.